Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Welcome to Bite Into It. It's another Wednesday. Uh, we've got Paul Callahan in studio. Hello. Hello, Hello Vanessa. I'm Vanessa Taholka and uh, Carl Chapman is doing duty behind the desk this evening as our silent producer. We really appreciate that. So tonight, what's coming up at this year's Accessibility and Inclusion Conference? It's called Ally Camp and we'll be speaking to one of the co-founders and uh, co-organisers of that event. So we're looking forward to that. Plus, how is a local company using machine learning technologies to help writers? We've got a preview on some technology being showcased at the Digital Writers Festival coming up. So that's what's on later in the show until, until we get there. Paul, what have we got in news today? Lots of like, browser news uh, is sort of today's big thing. Uh, Firefox number 70 uh, was released today. Uh, you can go to hacks.mozilla.org uh, to find out what new things they've added to it. Uh, obviously, lots of behind-the-scenes stuff, uh, but most of the, the public-facing stuff, Firefox has really made a big commitment to privacy um, and protection from tracking um, and things like that. One of the most interesting things for me is the sort of the, the exploring um, HT, uh, sorry, DNS over HTTPS. Um, so what that basically means is currently when you look, when you go to a website, the DNS requests aren't encrypted, mm. um, but Firefox is is partnered with Cloudflare to encrypt those DNS requests. So basically all of your internet traffic should be encrypted. Um, and also relevant to our conversation about Ally Camp, there's a couple of accessibility um, things being introduced. So things like color contest information uh, and the color picker. So if, you, if you're a developer and you're in the CSS rules view, um, you can click on foreground colors with a picker and see whether or not the background color um, is a reasonable amount of contrast with the foreground color. Oh, that's helpful. Which is really interesting. Yeah. Um, and they've also introduced um, keyboard checks. So it'll go through um, basically your, your website and look at all of the kind of keyboard, keyboard entry um, and check if, the, if that is going to be accessible or present any accessibility issues as oh, well. Oh, that is very relevant to our chat later. I love yeah. it. And so so lots, lots of changes in there. If you're at all interested, if you haven't already downloaded it or if it hasn't already automatically downloaded itself. <laughs> Um, you can go check that out. Uh, similarly, uh, Chrome 78 um, has just launched, so obviously 8, eight better, apparently, yes. um, at this point. A uh, lot less public-facing changes here, um, although apparently there's some dark mode improvements, the big tech <laughs> thing of the year. Um, so you can go check that out. Uh, some Google Drive integration. Uh, apparently there's a native API for uh, accessing files on your local machine, which I'm sure will not be a massive security <laughs> issue at all. Yeah. Um, so if you're a Firefox or a Chrome user, lots to lots to kind of go and, uh, and dig into and check out. I'm so torn there because I want to be a native Firefox user, but really the reality is so much of my stuff is done on the work machine. It's all Chrome. Yeah. You got, you got to start convincing those big companies, Vanessa. I'll start talking about Chrome 78 and they'll be like, yeah, you're <laughs> not getting happens. that for months, years, baby. <laughs> no native file API for you. No, possibly not. Um, but I do feel very safe behind my VPNs, so that's a good thing. Hey, an interesting thing has come up in the US. The Federal Trade Commission there has blocked the sale of a particular type of uh, stalkerware. Now, this is a really... Um, interesting move and I'd say quite a great move because it's 
been rare for the FTC to jump in on these sort of things. They've maybe felt like they weren't in an informed enough position on little pieces of uh, – on apps in particular and um, wouldn't in the past take that stronger stand on, you know, what the apps were trying to do. They're just like, oh, that seems valid. Yeah, sure, people might want to monitor where their kids are going. That's fine. Instead, uh, what they've done with this particular piece of um, software, it's it's one that can possibly intercept text messages and calls, track GPS locations um, – And they've acknowledged that software that has these sort of capabilities is often used in abusive relationships and that while they might purport to have very um, innocuous kind of uh, features, the reality is that unless they can demonstrate that they've taken steps to stop their software being used for nefarious purposes, then they're not going to allow um, this software to be sold and that it's part of their Bureau of Consumer Protection and that they think this is a a rapidly... um, growing area of consumer rights so well done to the FTC there for taking a tough stance and uh, we hope to see more of that here because we're definitely hearing stories about the problematic side but not so much the solution side mm. um, and just to, to finish up on our kind of news uh, so I think um, probably a few months ago or maybe the the tail end of last year the World Health Organization um, introduced this disordered gaming uh, diagnosis um, and that obviously triggered a whole bunch of conversations within the gaming community about about the, the validity of that. Um, and a recent study um, by Oxford's Institute, uh, Internet Institute, um, which was published in the Open Access Journal Clinical Psychological Science, um, takes a look at psychological needs, drives, and the relationship to dysregulated gaming. Um, it's got quite a, a we, an unwieldy title. It's uh, Investigating the Motivational and Psychosocial Dynamics of Dysregulated Gaming, Evidence from a Pre-Registered Cohort Study. Gee, they really wanted to discourage the average <laughs> gamer from reading this paper, didn't they? Um, and it's by Andrew K. Prisbilski and Netta Weinstein. Um, it's quite a dense paper. I had a read of it um, before the show. Um, so Ars Technica has quite a good of summary of it. Um, but essentially the results suggest that dysregulated gaming is unlikely to be a, a practically significant route by which psychological need frustration undermines psychosocial functioning. Can you unpack that for me, Paul? What yeah. does that effectively mean? Um, they're basically the, the kind of the thrust of the paper is that there's likely to be where they're observing uh, dysfunctional behaviors or un- unsocial behaviors mm-hmm. in people. It's probably deeper deeper issues or deeper drives for it than just gaming. Like later on in the paper, they talk about the extent to which an adolescent's video game play is dysregulated provides no practically useful incremental information when viewed in light of caregivers' assessments of emotional behavior or peer or conduct difficulties. Oh, wow. Yeah, so so basically how much they're playing video games is not an indica- necessarily an indicator um, of their behavior. Um, so the, the interesting thing for me is this this takes it seriously um, and really unpacks um, statistically these ideas. It's not kind of a knee-jerk reaction. Mm. Um, and it does close by saying that uh, based on the, um, the evidence reported in the study, we would conclude that uh, the amount of uh, energy um, and attention given to this idea of a gaming disorder is probably is not necessarily justified. Um, but I think like also suggests that a lot more work and a lot more consideration, a lot more sensitivity is needed. But it's definitely a really interesting paper um, if you're interested in these ideas. And it doesn't come out. Yeah, I think there's more work to be done. Yes, absolutely. But nice to know that we can't draw such strong conclusions yeah. from from any of those behaviours. That must be a comfort to game lovers out there. 
That's pretty great. Um, there are a few pieces of facial recognition news that cropped up this week and um, we might save them for near the end of the show because we've got some really interesting guests coming up. Triple R. You're with Bite Into It with Paul and Vanessa. Thanks for tuning in. Adam Sifsioglu is a digital accessibility consultant and developer. He's co-founder of the Intopia Digital Consultancy and co-organiser of Ally Bytes, which is a series of community-driven events and initiatives to raise the profile of digital accessibility. Tonight, he's telling us what's coming up in this year's Accessibility and Inclusion Conference, Ally Camp. Welcome, Adam. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, so you're always running tons of great events and every year Ally Bites holds an annual Ally Camp conference. It's coming to Sydney from the 12th to the 15th of November this year at the ICC in Sydney. Can you tell us a bit about what attendees can expect to experience this year, Adam? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a um, Ally Camp or A11Y Camp, which for those who don't know, the 11 comes from the 11 letters between the A and the Y in the word accessibility. We've shortened it because of things like Twitter. Just gives us... We did not know easier. that. That's very cool. Yeah, it makes it easier for to, to tweet and um, use social media and that sort of stuff. Uh, it's an annual professional development event for people to come together, share and learn ideas from each other, geek out, make friends... Um, and add their own knowledge into the mix. And it's from anyone, um, it's for anyone from the seasoned accessibility professional for anyone who just wants to either learn a bit more or even just stick their toes in the water and get an understanding of, of what accessibility and inclusion in the digital space is. So can you tell us... Um, a, oh, yeah, no, go on. Yeah, go on. Well, I just, I just wondered, what sort of um, streams do you have in your conference? So it's a... Uh, it's a dual stream conference, so we've got a sort of more technical stream for the sort of more hardcore development style people, so anyone who's, who's into uh, coding or programming or JavaScript, that sort of stuff, and then we've got a more uh, design and strategy stream for anyone who's, who's sort of maybe less worried about the tech side of things, but more interested in the... Um, the design and strategy and, and policy and process style. Um, and what sort of process do you go through? How do you how do you decide on on topics on, that you're going to cover each year? Uh, so it's it's a bit of a mixed bag. So it's uh, it's sort of uh, curated as well. So what we what we do is we we'll, we'll, um, we ask for a expression of interest for anybody who's who's interested in presenting, and we get some submissions that way, and then some uh, topics come to us via sort of, we know someone who's doing something really cool in this space, and we think it might be a, a good idea to see if they can come and present, and we tap them on the shoulder and sort of ask them to, to be part of things. And are you, based on that process, are you finding any themes or trends that are sort of emerging this year? Uh, that's, that's a good question. I think we've got a really good mix this year. So we've got topics that cover um, everything from inclusive smart cities to usability testing with people with disabilities to creating accessible and inclusive content to how to use one of the screen reading technologies. Mm. So it really does go for, it really does kind of go from like city scale thinking to like individual devices you're not finding it, uh, 
Yeah. I love that because I don't think that people necessarily read a city as a place where they're having a lot of digital interactions. But I think for those of us in the field, we know that that's, that's true of our experiences. Um, Adam, you've got a number of keynote speakers this year, including Human Rights Commissioner Ed Santow. Um, what ranges of uh, content are you expecting them to speak to? So I think look, there's, a, there's a really um, eclectic bunch of speakers this year and, and there'll be a, a huge range of content because we've got people coming in from all over the world. So there's obviously the Australian, um, Australian speakers, but we've also got people in from the USA, the UK, we've got speakers from India, um, New Zealand as well from, uh, from sort of companies that are ranging from your sort of large... Um, multinational style corporates to the small kind of freelance type people as well. So we've got someone, for example, from uh, from one of the, the banks talking about building a champions program for accessibility internally. We've got uh, we've got someone from Salesforce talking about accessibility in the context of Salesforce. We've also got um, what else? We got? Yeah, so. So you know, there's there's a lot of sort of different um, different presentations covering a, a range of different topics. So a specific one that caught my eye was um, an accessibility specialist from a bank running a session on automation. Are you seeing many intersections of applying this next wave of technologies like machine learning, AI, robotic process automation to accessible and inclusive design? So. Automation is an interesting one, right? Because if we if we look at the, um, the accessibility guidelines that I kind of work with day to day, there's really only at the moment sort of 15 to 20 percent of those guidelines, or, or the sort of success criteria in technical terms, that are automatically testable without some form of human interaction. So the fact that we are now at the point where we're trying to push the boundaries and look at you know, what can tools do from a simple sort of looking at code and going, yep, yeah, okay, based on what I know of how standards-based code should work, that works, but also pushing that further and going, well, how can AI potentially help and what can we do as the use of, use of AI increases and AI itself gets better, how can that help us uh, better automate the testing process? So are we starting to see the things that go outside of those 15 to 20 facets, um, say items that might uh, identify an area where a human would need to look over something, be able to be identified by automated processes? Uh, I'm not sure that we're there yet, yeah. but I think that is probably the next, let's call it the next frontier. That's the, the next thing that I think the tool vendors are actually working on is looking at how can we, the things that were traditionally manual, how can we push the boundaries a bit to go, well, okay, based on what I can do with, with technology now, that manual test doesn't necessarily have to be manual anymore. I don't know how I feel about that idea and I don't know that I'm completely sold on that, <laughs> but, you know, it doesn't hurt to try. Absolutely. Another aspect of the um, the event that you're running is the opportunity for people to um, do exams to get accreditations under the International Association of Accessibility Professionals. I can see why you replace the word accessibility so much now too, by the way. Yeah. 
Um, could you could you tell us a bit about about those credentials? Uh, yeah, so there's there's two exams, and I've got the acronyms in front of me, but <laughs> don't have the actual spelled out. So there's the. Oh, the I've got them way, spelled yeah. out so here. If you need Adam, yeah. <laughs> so the web accessibility uh, specialist one. Specialist, yeah, and then the. The Certified Professional in Accessibility Core Competencies. Yes. So, so what um, are the what are the distinctions between those two? So, I guess one is the um, the base level. Mm-hmm. So, the the core competencies is is just that right. the kind of core competencies, and then the specialist being the one step up from that which is, or there's sort of a couple of steps up from that, which okay. is a certified specialist in accessibility. That, that's good to know because it wasn't sort of clear to me from reading the website and uh, not working in that, in that sector specifically. Do you have any sense of what proportion of, of digital workers in the, in the online space uh, are really qualified with these sort of certifications in the Australian market? So the certifications are relatively new thing. Um, so it's probably been around, and I'm, I'm going to get this wrong, but let's let's say sort of 12 to 18 months, um, maybe. So in terms of the Australian market, not 100% sure in terms of how many people have certified. I do know I do know some that have, but in terms of what the Australian market looks like, unfortunately, uh, no idea at this stage personally. I guess that was leading me to um, the the space about government uh, regulation that, that crosses into your field here. And yep. uh, considering that the accreditations are quite new, I imagine that they're not really mandated at a, at a government regulatory kind of level. But what sort of protections are there for people with different sort of accessibility requirements? So in Australia, the Disability Discrimination Act of 1992 basically says, puts it quite simply, it says you can't. Um, discriminate against someone based on disability, um, which means basically that you need to be able to provide equal or equitable equitable access to um, to anyone with a disability for pretty much anything they want to do, and digital is part of that. Cool, cool. All right. So it's it's really nice in a way to have this overarching legislation and not have to have nitty gritty stuff that fails to keep up with technological advances. Absolutely. And look, I, I may have oversimplified a bit there, but that is, that is pretty much the crux of it. And has that been, have you, in the time that you've sort of been running running your events, has that become, Has that always been the baseline and the, the kind of the digital projects that have, that have um, been produced? Or have you sort of started to see companies and, and developers become more, more aware over the years and start to implement... Um, more accessible tools and more accessible um, access. So we've um, we've actually seen a bit of a shift in in recent years. I think the um, the thing is companies are starting to realise that this is just good business. Like it's not it's not about the legal requirement. Sure, there is there's a requirement to make sure that anything that we're Building and putting out is accessible to to everybody and accessible to people with disabilities. But it's just it's it's good business. If you look at the global buying power of people with disability, it's um it's estimated at 
1.97 trillion US dollars or something around those sort of that number, which is a lot of money. And if, if you add the family and friends and the people that, that people with disabilities have influence over, that number gets even bigger. Mm. Um, and couple that with the fact that, you know, a lot of organisations are using um, NPS as a, as a factor these days. And it's kind of said that people with disability are three times more likely to avoid an organisation or twice as likely to dissuade others from using a particular organisation if they've had a negative experience. So I think what's happening in the Australian market at least at the moment is people are looking at that and going, well, not only you know, is it the right thing to do, but it just makes sense from a business perspective for us to do this. Gee, uh, there's some interesting figures there, mm. but um, I hope that the profit motive isn't what's pushing most people. Um, I know that I think about my colleagues and, and just the, the basic productivity. We can't afford to have, you know, clever people not being able to, to um, help us just get things done. So I think getting in Absolutely. the way, yeah, is, is such a problem. And it's one in five people in the Australian community, right? Mm. So it's 20% of Australians that have some form of disability. So that's not a small number. Yeah, I think any of us working in front of screens for a long time start worrying about our potential to acquire a disability as well. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a close issue for all of us. Adam, thank you so much for telling us about what people can expect at, um, I'm trying to say it correctly, is it, it's not Ally, it's... it's so it's, it's either A11Y or Ally. Ally, Ally Camp Australia 2019. Yeah, we Australianise it a little bit. Love it. Well, a11ycamp.org.au is where our listeners can find out more information. It is running from the 12th to the 15th of November this year up in Sydney. Well worth getting along to if you work in the digital delivery space. Just before I sign off today, um, we've got a special offer for your listeners. So if they register for the conference days using the uh, code BITE, that is amazing, Adam. That's so generous from your organisation's point of view. Thanks so much for that. We'll uh, make sure to share it around. No worries at all. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure. Have a great evening and uh, we'll chat to you later. Bye. Thank you. You too. Bye. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Bite into it with Paul and Vanessa this evening. Thanks for tuning in. Sam Harron is a creative director of Sandpit. They've recently partnered with Google's Creative Lab and the Digital Writers Festival to create Telescope, a machine learning tool for writers. To tell us all about it, Sam has joined us all the way from Adelaide on the line now. Welcome, Sam. Welcome. Um, Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm um, excited to chat. It's a pleasure, and over such distance too, it's a bit exotic for us to have someone from Adelaide. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, so the Digital Writers Festival is coming up from Tuesday the 29th of October till the 2nd of November. I wonder when did your creative partnership with the festival and with Google's Creative Lab begin? Uh, It probably started maybe almost six months ago when we um, started kind of exploring the idea of machine learning tools um, and kind of how machine learning could be kind of set up as a kind of new kind of way to assist writers to um, kind of come up with ideas and sculpt those ideas through a writing process. Um, And, yeah, so it ended up being a really natural fit because obviously the writers, uh, Digital Writers Festival is really focused on... um, kind of technology and storytelling. Um, so it kind of started from there. I love that. So we need to unpack it a little bit further, I think. Mm. When someone says, what is Telescope, how do you how do you picture that then? 
Yeah, well, we kind of went, we were really interested in going, if you're a writer and you're in the process of developing a character, it could be really interesting to kind of take that character into the real world and almost like go for a walk with that character. Um, and so we were really interested in going, could we kind of combine um, the kind of processes of machine learning with something which you could take into the real world where you could um, uh, kind of take a description of your character and then see what it would be like to take that character into the real world to kind of generate a series of raw ideas for you as a writer. Oh, my gosh. I mean, authors talk yeah. about characters taking on lives of their own. But I'm not sure that any of them quite envisaged what you're describing here. When you say go for a walk with the character, what does what does that mean? How do you how do you simulate that experience? Yeah, so the way the telescope works is it has two components. It use it connects with a Google Doc, um, and so the idea is that you have like a if you know kind of Google Docs, you can have like Google Doc add-ons where you can um, kind of have an, an additional kind of functionality. So, say for example, you might uh, kind of have a bio of a character. You can then uh, be in a Google Doc and write that kind of bio. Um, then that connects to a mobile application that you can have on your smartphone. And the idea is that you take your smartphone with you on this walk and you have headphones. And uh, we use all the sensors in the smartphone. That, that ranges from the camera to the GPS sensors to um, other kind of location sensors. And all of that then kind of feeds um, a machine learning engine that then can take what you've written, what's going on in the real world, and then kind of create these little fragments of ideas that you then hear that are spoken to you through your headphones. That sounds, that sounds like magic. Um, can, you, can, you give, can you give us an example, just to kind of yeah, make it concrete? Yeah, totally, totally. So say, for example, when we were um, testing the app, we took um, David Lynch's Laura Palmer character... <laughs> So what, we, we thought that Laura Palmer was like a really good example of, um, you know, a well-known character that we couldn't have kind of understood. So basically what you're doing as a writer is entering that into the Telescope app. It's using a machine learning engine um, to get technical here called GPT-2, which is a basically a language prediction um, uh, machine learning model. And it's been trained on about 50 gigabytes of text on the internet. When, and when you think about text, that's actually a lot of text. So that's text written by humans. And so it basically has this sort of like core capability. And what it does is that it takes the description of Laura Palmer. And so if I go for a walk around in Adelaide, it can then recognize things uh, through the camera that I might see. So if I see like a dog or a car or a person, it can recognize those things. And then it can basically sort of improvise using the information about the character and the sort of core machine learning kind of model to generate kind of fragments of text. And the kind of idea is that this is about, you know, in a way kind of thinking about kind of like writer's block. If you're um, wanting to kind of go, what would happen if I extended this character or put them in this situation? It can kind of fuel you with kind of raw ideas. Oh, there's so many questions. So many questions, Sam. Um, yeah. One question that comes to mind immediately is about authorship. So if, mm. I, if I use this, you know, is, is Google my co-author? Well, it was really central to us in all of this sort of machine learning stuff with Google that this really is in no way trying to replace the role of the writer. Like what this is kind of good at doing is kind of spitting out kind of unexpected or kind of interesting kind of raw materials for the writer. So it's in no way trying to seek to produce really coherent or resolved writing, but to kind of generate new ideas that might be interesting for you as an author. Um, did, and did, we actually referred, yeah. Uh, did anyone Sorry. think about whether you could maybe test for, is my character not well-rounded? Is this obvious 
via, you know, putting in a very short bio and then and then having an experience that was really flat, for example? Mm. Well, definitely one of the things we've noticed happens is if you um, put in certain kind of information. So when I was using Laura Palmer as um, a prototype, it totally um, kind of picked up the sort of specifics of her particular world, which is a sort of like very kind of perfect high school world versus a sort of seedy underbelly. So it does tend to kind of pick up on um, genre in a kind of quite interesting way and and can kind of um, kind of understand those sort of nuances and feed them back to you. Um, and it, I mean, it sounds like it's more of a collaborative uh, process between you as a writer and and the sort of the machine, but also with this like corpus of what like how like five hundred however much many words that you sort of had. Is that how mm. is that how writers experience it, or do they sort of do they have a different kind of response to it? Well, when we um, kind of worked with a, a group of writers on this project, we found we were kind of really excited by seeing how they responded to this tool. And I think the idea of um, writers talked a lot about how um, writing about places or going to places to write is kind of core in their process. And so what got exciting about this is like this is another kind of, this is like a digital tool to um, potentially assist the writer in what it means to kind of engage with those places and kind of extend how they can... Um, think about um, kind of place in generating kind of character and scenario. Mm. I love that you incorporated the sense of a walk in the experience because so many people talk about, oh, I've got, you know, I'm blocked. <laughs> I need to go for a walk and, and generate ideas. And that really does work. So let's mm. step back a bit again and mm. and talk about your process. Did you approach um, this challenge with a problem definition phase or did you start in some other way you know how did you end mm. up with the telescope idea yeah well kind of the starting point from the lab when they began thinking about uh this project was kind of going what would it be like to kind of walk through the world with your phone and a sort of headphones and hear kind of generative text that was about where you were and then kind of at the same time, they were starting to think about machine learning tools and writers and kind of went, well, could it be interesting to um, think about kind of thinking about this more, not as a kind of coherent um, endpoint, but more like a stimulus for a writer as the sort of user. Um, and so we found that kind of really exciting because it, like machine learning by its nature is um, this kind of wonderful, abstract, bizarre kind of um, engine and so we felt that the idea of having like interesting provocations was very exciting and one of the things that we referred to was like kind of like going back to like surrealist kind of writing exercises and the sort of, sort of things that like people like David Bowie did when he kind of would write lyrics for songs where he would kind of take fragments of text and kind of cut them up and create circumstances where like random um, randomness could be part of the fuel for a writer to kind of put ideas together they wouldn't otherwise expect. So that was really our inspiration for defining the app. Were there any false starts, Sam? Uh, well, I think um, I think there's. it was very much kind of like a recipe where we were going, how do we interpret the information around us? How do we interpret the information from the writer? And how does that then work against this sort of core engine? So there were points where um, there's a thing in... Um, this kind of machine learn, learning model called temperature, and that's basically how adventurous will the model be when it gets the <laughs> stimulus. And so we kind of went, if you turn the temperature up, it just becomes 
like crazy. Um, so like, there were things like that where we were going, well, what's what, where where is it listening enough to the like the impetus that you give it as the um, as the writer, and where can it? open up enough new ideas that it becomes an interesting experience. Wow, you'd have to have a brave user tester to turn up the temperature on a <laughs> David Lynch-inspired world. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's really interesting. Um, were there any constraints when you were working with Google's Creative Lab? No, I think the lab approached this in a very, very kind of open way. And I think um, they were really – one of their missions was to go um, – Obviously, some of the kind of narratives around machine learning can be one of kind of like concern and anxiety that like machine learning is going to just kind of replicate humans in order to replace them. And I think the the mission that the lab had was to go, well, actually, how can we think about these as kind of useful tools that actually feed humans to do their job really well and not seek to kind of replace or kind of take them over and that that was a really kind of um a really inspiring starting point and i think the lab was really open to go like let's see what that looks like um and with the with the relationship with the the digital writers festival how how did that come about and will people at the festival be able to actually use this tool Yes, absolutely. So that, that will happen in two ways. So when we were developing these tools, we engaged with um, a group of writers from the Digital Writers Festival that, ha that have had kind of commissions where they've used the like our tool telescope and a couple of other tools that the lab has generated um, to kind of fuel their own writing. Um, alongside that, we're running um, a couple of little kind of intimate workshops that are using the telescope tool on November the 2nd. Um, and that's an opportunity to like come in and kind of for us to kind of show you like what we've done, how it works, and kind of, yeah, hand, hand it over to kind of writers to have a chance to experience it themselves. And with, and with, the, with working with writers, like you're talking about some quite complicated technology. Um, mm. do, do the writers that you're working with like intuitively get it? Or do people have sort of a baseline understanding mm. of, of what machine learning is now that you don't have to explain it as much? Yeah, I mean, we, we found working with the, the writers in this process that they were all kind of, you know, relatively relatively engaged with technology, relatively um, kind of versed in various forms of um, technology and, like, the resources of the internet being very connected to their processes. So I think the uh, what was really great, and obviously this is the focus of the, the Digital Writers Festival, is that there's already uh, an appetite and an engagement with how technical... Um, how technology and technical platforms can fuel the writing process. So it actually felt kind of quite natural and um, was just really great because I think they instantly had really insightful and kind of quite technical things to say about what we were doing, which was great. Sam, it's been brilliant speaking with you about Telescope. It's such an innovative project and um, that's not always what happens out of little, you know, innovative investment yeah. things. So it's really exciting to hear. Um, Remind our listeners again where they can catch you at the Digital Writers Festival. Yes, so we um, are running two sessions at 11 and 12 p.m. on November 2nd. And if you head to the Digital Writers Festival website, you can um, find us some information and register there. They're, they're both kind of quite small sessions. So we would love anyone who's interested in this to uh, head to the site and register and um, we'll see you there. Yeah, and that site is 2019.digitalwritersfestival.com. Thanks very much, Sam Horan from Sandpit. Have a good evening. Yeah, thank you. Triple R.
on Triple R. We've bite into it. We've got Vanessa and Paul in studio. Carl pressing our buttons this evening. We appreciate that. And we did promise a little bit of facial recognition news before. It's just all over the news lately. You can't open anything without coming across something. Um, now there's an article about whether facial recognition can decide if you get a job or not. Paul, what's going on here? Uh, so this is um, this is uh, from an article that uh, from the Washington Post, uh, effectively about uh, using artificial intelligence and machine learning um, to to give a job interview over webcam and then to accumulate a whole bunch of data points um, just from your face about whether or not you're going to be a good or a bad employee. Um, so no interaction with with a person at that stage. Um, it's disturbing. The article goes into a lot of kind of the criticisms uh, of this. One of the things I found most interesting is that some uh, graduates uh, and or people going for intern jobs have gone to their universities and gone, I have huge anxiety about this. So the universities have set up like effectively training um, for how to how to kind of do the best in these types of interviews. Um, and it raises so many questions about, you know, how has this been trained? Because when you do train things with machine learning algorithms, um, the the cause and effect is not that clear. Actually, you know, the computer is inferring things, the software is inferring things and making decisions based on the inputs. So if the inputs have bias... So the criticisms in the article are, are all about that. It's yeah. effectively completely um, black box. And there's the part of the agreement when companies sign up for using this tool is that the company will not give the reasoning. Um, so even if you give it the benefit of the doubt, like maybe it's reading facial expressions and going, hey, when we approached you with this problem, did you approach it with enthusiasm and intellectual curiosity? Or did you look despondent and, and you know, like this is going to be a challenge? But we don't know if the computer's also going, oh, but you, you know, you have white skin and most of our existing successful people in these roles have white skin, therefore we're going to or even thing, you. Or even things like um, how busy the background might be yes. behind you. Um, a lot of people flagged like some accessibility issues. Uh, um, so it's it feels very... Very kind of dystopian. Um, Every time this comes up too, somebody on Twitter says, oh, they've invented phrenology again, <laughs> which I love. I live for that tweet. And I think, um, yeah, there's a, there's a couple of the criticisms that talk about it um, as, as phrenology, effectively. Mm. Um, other facial recognition news, uh, Google Pixel 4, uh, their new face unlock feature, which, which obviously the iPhone has had for a while as well. Um, will unlock if you are asleep or you have your eyes closed. It's not doing eye recognition. Why might that be a problem, Paul? It might be a problem because someone could just take your phone uh, off your bedside table, unlock it, and then have their have their way with it. Um, Google have said that uh, their fix is coming, but it's, it's a couple of months away. Um, and to use a specific lockdown feature um, that the phone has to stop others from unlocking the phone. I mean, this is a classic design issue, isn't it? It's a design blind spot where they've said it's not an intended use, therefore we haven't thought about it. It does seem to be that there, the, a previous build of the software um, had an option to require eyes to be open. So it's possible that it's not a design blind spot. It's, it's possible that it's a marketing slash software development mm. timeframe issue um, rather than obviously stall the launch. That's very optimistic. 
<laughs> and I've got the Grateful Dead's like dead eyes open in my head at the moment because not only do eyes need to be open usually in some of the software that people have made like this, you know, it's not only do the eyes have to be open, they kind of have to be moving a little, yeah. you know, they have to, you have to be alive. And I mean, speaking of like coming back to the previous one, like one other piece of advice um, that the, the universities gave to some people doing those interviews was to put little googly eyes on the <laughs> webcam so that they would maintain eye contact. <laughs> so like... Finally, those glasses where you're always awake <laughs> have come back with, a you know, they've got a purpose again. So it seems like eyes have a bit of a, a, bit of a problem. Um, <laughs> with these things um last sort of piece of facial recognition uh facebook uh the wonderful facebook um are about to face a potential 35 billion dollar class action um over misuse uh of facial recognition data um and it's a lawsuit that began in 2015 um when some users of facebook in illinois uh, accused facebook uh, of violating um that state's biometric information privacy act um and it's effectively the gathering of biometric data from photographs that you upload that, that's matching to friends. Um, so lack of consent uh, around data, Facebook, you know, doing its usual thing of moving fast and breaking things. Um, I don't know if it detected whether or not eyes were open um, or closed <laughs> in it. Um, but according to the reports, Facebook could face uh, up to $5,000 in penalties per user. Um, and that's 7 million people. Um, which could sum up to that that number of thirty five billion. Gee, if that if those costs started adding up, they might actually do something about the number of fake users on don't, Facebook. Don't they have another one that's like forty five billion oh, going know. on at the moment? It seems to it's just, it just seems a to small change. Yeah, to them. that they don't care. Yeah, they just do whatever they want to do. Look, that does tie into our weird news of the week news, which is um, that an EU court has held that if a piece of content is illegal in one country. Um, Facebook has to take it down globally. Now, what this actually illuminates is the massive challenge we have in trying to regulate the operations of tech companies, which are global, with our national and local jurisdictions. So in that last example uh, of Facebook's class action, uh, it was based on on a case in Illinois. And uh, last week, there was a different EU court which found that the right to be forgotten doesn't apply globally. So you're getting very inconsistent results, even at different EU courts, even you know in different countries and different states in different countries. And with uh, reading commentary from uh, legal experts in the technology field saying that this is going to create an environment of, uh, of jurisdiction hopping where people look for the best jurisdiction in which to base themselves to do certain things that might be problematic elsewhere. Um, A bit like when people look for tax havens, there will be potentially technology feature havens. It's like, oh, but that facial recognition feature comes out of our China office. Therefore, I'm just choosing them randomly. There's, there's no there's no secret message there, Paul. <laughs> um, yes, and it's, it's a really – it's an interesting piece of commentary, I thought, on the – the conversation at the moment, which is really how do you even begin to regulate? What does good regulation look like in these ways um, with these massive companies? But also um, I think like the the very complex tensions between lo- like what is effectively local, local discourse and, and global discourse as well. Like how do we... How do you have a consistency of what is a, a commonly held cultural value or social expectation... Yeah. Yeah, and I think like t- the technology companies as as globalized companies, and we're sort of seeing some of this stuff play out um, 
across you know games games and tech especially in the hong kong protests at the moment where they're making business decisions which you know inevitably they would so certain questions about where where those who who benefits from those decisions as well i think is always going to be an ongoing conversation that we have on this show it is it is i guess the other part of that ongoing conversation is where governments themselves try to shut down access to um the communication available through these social media outlets uh, because it sort of suits them at the time. So there's some protests going on in Chile at the moment. Uh, I've seen some trite takes on that, which are, oh, the government up to the public transport costs and therefore people are burning buses. Now, it's clearly a much more complex situation than that. I have a friend who's in Chile at the moment and um, was originally posting some updates about that on Facebook and uh, the word on the street is that Facebook's going to be shut down soon because they don't want people sharing those sort of political messages on the platform and that there was all this um, uncertainty about whether they'd still be able to share through WhatsApp or, you know, and is that encrypted or not? And, and people saying, oh, it might be encrypted, but the government might have the keys to that encryption. You know, so all of this um, this fear and this, this problematic um, ability to have a free and open discourse uh, in these technology companies, and there's no responsibility on their part to maintain a service. Um, so there's all that, all, all rights and no responsibilities sort of care of, of um, companies that with their populations are bigger than many nations. So it's, it's uh, again, something we will keep coming endlessly, back to. <laughs> endlessly come back to, I think, on this show. Yeah. yeah, I think so. But before we let you go this evening, we do have to call out a couple of events again Um the first is the A11Y um, camp, which is the accessibility and inclusion camp up in uh, Sydney from the 12th to the 15th of November. The workshops are happening from the 12th to the 13th and the conference part is the 14th to the 15th. Um, they have generously offered a discount to Triple R listeners. Uh, if you sign up to the conference program with the code in all caps BYTE, B-Y-T-E, you'll get 10% off the cost of that. So that's an amazing incentive to head up to Sydney and really learn a lot more about accessibility and inclusion in the digital spaces. Uh, go to a11ycamp.org.au if you want to find out more. Well worth your time and we uh, appreciate hearing about that tonight. Um, also on tomorrow, um, what's hot in IT's next event, Human Tech, uh, is on the 24th of October. Um, and Human Tech is about exploring the way that technology can help improve our health and lifestyles. Um, you can find tickets for that on Eventbrite, uh, just which is eventbrite.com.au. I'm sure you're all familiar with that. Um, and that's do a search for Human Tech or what's hot in IT. Yeah, that's um, something that's produced by Vic ICT for Women, and they're an amazing inclusive organisation. Speaking of all things inclusive. Hey, a big thank you to you for tuning in this evening. Uh, we've been privileged to have a couple of really talented guests tonight. We've had Adam Sifsioglu, who's the co-founder of um, A11Y Bytes, and Sam Hayron, who's creative director of Sandpit, who did that collaboration with Google's Creative Labs and the Digital Writers Festival. Do look out for their telescope um, experimental machine learning writing inspiration product at the Digital Writers Fest. It sounds incredible. We've been bite into it. We'll be back next Wednesday evening. Big thanks to Carl for pushing the buttons this evening. Thanks, Paul Callahan, for being with me. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. 
Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts.